Hi, welcome back to part two and our conclusion episode on the critical reevaluation of the Women's Health Initiative. In this episode, we're going to cover the latest recommendations from the North American Menopause Society, or NAMS, which was released in the summer of 2017. Thanks for listening. Let's get started right now. In part one, we reviewed how the final conclusions and final data sets of the Women's Health Initiative, which was eventually released in 2007, was much different than the original results in 2002. We've also come to know that initiation of hormone therapy at an earlier age to menopause is much different than initiation at later ages past menopause. Also, we have learned that the routes of administration of estrogen and even the types of oral estrogen and progesterone used all modify potential adverse effects and health risks. That's a good clinical pearl. Remember that there's big differences between oral estrogen or oral HRT in general and the transdermal routes. We can talk about transdermal hormone replacement therapy in another episode since in this second podcast, we're covering HRT globally, specifically the fallout from WHI. NAMS has provided an updated statement on HRT to try to rebalance the data first released by WHI. The updated position statement was first published in June of 2017 in the issue of the journal Menopause. The statement aimed to clear up some confusion around the data from WHI. The position statement starts by reminding everyone that the risks of HRT are different for different women based upon the type used, the dose, the duration of use, and as we just stated, the route of administration. Equally important is the timing of HRT initiation. Lastly, it depends on whether or not a progestogen is used as well. According to NAMS, treatment should be individualized using the best available evidence to maximize benefits and minimize risks with periodic reevaluation of the benefits and risks of continuing HRT for each patient. For women younger than 60 or who are within 10 years of menopause and have no contraindications, the benefits outweigh the risks for treating bothersome hot flashes and for women with higher than average risk of bone loss or fracture. Based on results from the Women's Health Initiative study, women who need to take HRT for a longer period of time should take estrogen-only HRT with local uterine protection like a progesterone-releasing IUD rather than combination HRT or if a combination is used, use a regimen other than conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate. However, for women who start HRT more than 10 or 20 years after the start of menopause or when they're 60 years of age or older, the risks of HRT are greater than the benefits because HRT is linked to a higher risk of heart disease, stroke, blood clots, and dementia in that cohort. 
women older than 60 or 65 who have already been on HRT don't automatically have to stop taking HRT and can consider continuing it beyond the age of 65 if they have persistent hot flashes, quality of life issues, or for the prevention of osteoporosis after appropriate evaluation and counseling on the benefits and risks of continual HRT. Remember, ideally, HRT should be used at the lowest dose and the shortest duration possible, usually defined as 5 to 7 years. But there is no absolute age at which it's absolutely necessary to stop using it, especially if bothersome symptoms already or are persistently occurring. Now, vaginal estrogen and systemic, if required, or other non-estrogen therapies may be used at any age for prevention of vaginal dryness or for the treatment of vaginal dryness and other associated genital urinary symptoms. Remember that if local vaginal atrophy symptoms is the only manifestation of menopause in the woman, then local vaginal therapy is preferred. We'll wrap up this podcast with a quick word about family, but not personal history of breast cancer, according to the NAMS report. Women with a family history of premenopausal breast cancer, particularly in a first-degree relative like a mother, a sister, or a daughter, are at increased risk of breast cancer. However, this risk is not thought to be further increased by the use of HRT. In terms of breast cancer risk, women can be assured of the safety of short-term HRT, again, that's five or seven years at a maximum. Long-term HRT may slightly increase the risk of breast cancer, but the data that suggests this association are neither compelling nor consistent, and that's a statement from the North American Menopause Society. Overall, here's a clinical pearl. After many epidemiological studies, there is no clear, definitive evidence showing that HRT absolutely raises the risk of breast cancer. I know that in part one, we talked about the attributable risk of breast cancer in real numbers, but it's worth saying that again. The attributable risk of breast cancer in women with a mean age of, say, 60 or 63, randomized to conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate in the WHI study was less than one additional case of breast cancer in 1,000 users per year, a risk slightly greater than that observed with one daily glass of wine, less than two daily glasses, and a risk similar to the risk reported with obesity, low physical activity, and other medications. So once again, the data, according to WHI, is very, very weak for causing breast cancer. Well, what about the role of progestins? Well, some, but not all, observational data do suggest that micronized progesterone may have less effect on breast cancer risk than, say, medroxyprogesterone acetate. More potent progestins, like MPA, in theory can cause an additional or a higher risk in addition to conjugated equine estrogen, but randomized trials are needed. So what's the take-home message? What's the clinical pearl? If progesterone is needed for endometriosis, mutual protection, then some data suggest using micronized progesterone. 
Now, we have to pull out a special population when we talk about breast cancer risk. We just covered women who have a family history of breast cancer. Remember that a personal history of breast cancer makes hormone replacement therapy contraindicated. But what about women who have genetic risk factors for breast cancer like BRCA? Can they use hormone replacement therapy? Limited observational evidence suggests that hormone therapy use does not further increase the risk of breast cancer in women with a family history of breast cancer or in women after oophorectomy for BRCA1 or 2 gene mutations. So that information should be reassuring to the BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation carrier who desires hormone therapy. Of course, BRCA carriers require high frequency of breast cancer imaging as screening for breast cancer. What about ovarian cancer? Well, if an association between hormone therapy and ovarian cancer exists, the absolute risk is to be rare or very rare and more likely to occur with extended or very long durations of use. And just to be clear, we're talking about 1 per 1,000 or 0.01 per 1,000 cases of ovarian cancer with hormone therapy. Again, very, very rare. Limited observational data have not found an increased risk of ovarian cancer in women with a family history or a BRCA mutation who use estrogen and progestin therapy. Concern has been raised regarding hormone therapy in tumors that are likely to contain estrogen receptors, but data are limited. In the WHI, the only randomized trial to date to study ovarian cancer, conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate had no significant effect on the incidence of ovarian cancer relative to placebo after five and a half years active therapy and 13 years of follow-up. Observational data are inconsistent, but some, but not all studies, show an increased risk after 5 or 10 years, but again, that data is pretty poor, and the absolute risk of ovarian cancer with hormone therapy, remember, is stated to be rare or very rare. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Before we end the podcast talking about transdermal or non-oral hormone therapy options, a quick word about WHI and dementia. In the absence of more definitive findings, hormone therapy cannot be recommended at any age to prevent or treat a decline in cognitive function or dementia. On the basis of the WHI memory study, caution should be taken in initiating continuous combined daily conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate in women who are older than 65 given the relatively small or infrequent increase in the risk for dementia of an extra 23 cases per 10,000 person years, which was seen in the WHI. 
estrogen therapy may have positive cognitive benefits when started immediately after early surgical menopause. But hormone therapy in early natural postmenopausal period has neutral effects on current cognitive function. Only limited support, which are observational studies, are available for a critical window hypothesis of hormone therapy in Alzheimer's disease prevention. The effect of hormone therapy may be modified by baseline cognitive function with more favorable effects in women with normal cognitive function before starting hormone therapy. Evidence is insufficient to support hormone therapy use in the treatment of clinical depression. Now, in small randomized clinical trials, estrogen therapy was effective in improving clinical depression in perimenopausal but not postmenopausal women. Lastly, women whose depression improves with hormone therapy are likely to experience a worsening of mood after estrogen withdrawal. Now that we're at the end of our podcast, we do need to say a quick word about the differences between oral and transdermal hormone therapy, although that's not the real focus of this episode. Nonetheless, there are some clinical pearls that we have to be reminded of regarding these two routes of administration. Oral estrogens do undergo first-pass metabolism through the liver, whereas transdermal estrogens do not. As a result, therapeutic plasma concentrations can be achieved in a more steady, smoother fashion with transdermal estrogen, and blood levels are less subject to inter-individual variability than compared to the oral route. In addition, the lack of first-pass metabolism with transdermal estrogen allows the use of lower dosages than with oral formulations. Also, remember that transdermal estrogen seems to not affect CRP and IGF-1 levels. That's important because oral conjugated estrogens have a more than two-fold increase in CRP and a significant reduction in IGF-1. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because an increase in CRP levels is accompanied by a reduction in IGF-1, and IGF-1 is an anti-inflammatory factor. More importantly, CRP is a strong independent predictor of myocardial infarction and cardiovascular mortality in otherwise healthy women. Remember, the transdermal HRT is also associated with other favorable effects on cardiovascular risk factors in postmenopausal women. That includes a reduction in serum triglycerides, elevation of HDL2, and we've already covered its neutral effect on CRP levels. Interestingly, the controversial risk for breast cancer with oral therapy does not seem to apply to transdermal therapy. So what's our last clinical pearl? In the patient who requires hormone replacement therapy, advise and try to guide the patient towards transdermal routes of application rather than oral. The last issue to address is VTE risk, which once again seems to be much lower with transdermal application than with oral HRT. Well, that wraps up our podcast. We've covered the NAMS 2017 updated bulletin on hormone replacement therapy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.